Today, we're actually going to wrap up this series. We're going to just take some broader reflections, and the title of uh, our talk today is How Not to Be Secular. Um, this is just how do you not participate in the world's forms of thinking and systems of thought, and particularly as we look at that in modern America. So, before we get started, let me pray for us, and we'll get rolling. Father, we're grateful for the morning, thankful for the opportunity to gather together to learn and to be taught by you. Guide us in our understanding of our present moment in our world. We know that it's not outside of your control and that our Lord Jesus lays claim to our culture, and so help us to know how to live as your faithful disciples in the midst of that place. Guide us in our time today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, over the past few weeks, we've introduced a few terms to you just to help you understand uh, kind of the cultural situation in which we find ourselves. We've been describing that cultural situation using several uh, authorities and resources outside because this is not native turf for me, um, but looking at those terms in order not just to be sophisticated intellectually, but to try to describe in order to help you grasp and get your hands around some of the changes that you see going on in culture around you. The main term that we've used is the psychologized self. Now, I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hand and give the answer to what that means, but just to remind you that there has been a shift in how human beings define themselves, and we've watched this unfold, uh, particularly in the last 20 years, but it has been a process, a snowball that started some 200 years ago, all right? And so that's one of the most important things that I can explain to you, because some people in the last 20 years feel like everything is changing, and in one regard, that's true, but yet in another regard, this has been coming for a really long time, okay? And, uh, and these are just some consequences and ramifications of secular thought that, uh, that began and have now gained steam and are somewhat coming to their telos, to their fruition, okay, in what we see in modern America. Uh, and the psychologized self is just simply that uh, human beings are defined by our own intuitions, by our own instincts, by our own desires, and by our own wants. So rather than receiving a definition about who we are and what we are designed for from the outside, from an external source, namely from God, we now are the captains of that ship and we have the right to define that as we want. And so you can see that that sets up two very different sources of authority two extremely different sources of authority for how we conceive of ourselves. And as America has grown more and more secular, it's not that America was actually, um, you know, ever pristine in its Christianity. Uh, there were secular foundations all the way back to the beginning, but there was more a leavening of Christian morality, okay, in the United States. And so even a uh, a non-Christian would be informed by Christian morals, okay? That's just kind of the way it worked. But we see that those kind of restraints are off now. Uh, people are increasingly uh, distanced from that Christian moral tradition. Um, and, uh, and so now we are kind of getting more in touch with, um, you know, with kind of what we would just call secular thought. That is, um, not, uh, that is thought that's not grounded in Scripture. So the psychologized self impacts everything, okay? We've argued that it impacts social life, political life, and religious aspects of life in modern America. It's not going to leave anything untouched. 
And as cultural creatures, you and I are both cultural creatures, we are impacted as well, okay? We can't pretend as if we are untouched by this simply because Jesus has saved us, all right? Now, that's important just because we need a certain amount of humility ourselves to be able to look critically and ask, where am I being influenced by this? So we can't avoid the influence and pressures of our surrounding culture. But what we can do is we can mitigate that situation by being aware, self-conscious, and reflective, okay? And so that's one of the goals as to what we're doing here over these weeks is being aware, self-conscious, and reflective is for each of us to come into an understanding of what's going on and how it can impact us. So this type of awareness is incredibly important for Christians as we seek to buffer ourselves from the secular mindset that defines modern America, okay? Please hold on to that, and if you walk away with anything from the past four weeks, hold on to that, all right? Um, That we wanna know how to buffer ourselves. Now, first question that we're gonna look at today, this is kinda just to summarize with a different diagram for you about what's going on in our cultural context, but you see it there, you have a large triangle, and some of you are gonna be familiar with this. This is called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. I was introduced to this as a uh, a freshman in college, as the first time I at least remember it, but very common, and it is just explaining basically how human beings work. And so there's five levels of need, or you could break it down into threes, but the base level, the bottom of the triangle there, is what's called physiological needs. These are simply bodily needs, like food and clothing, okay? And that this is the basic thing that humans need for subsistence, is they need food and clothing, physiological needs. Now, second level, Maslow defined this as safety, okay? That a human being needs safety, needs a safe context. And so those both just kind of apply to the physical environment for a human being to flourish, okay? Physiological needs and the need of safety. Then we move into the next two categories that kind of uh, fall together, and you could call these psychological needs, that there's a human need for love and belonging. That is, we all long to be loved and we all long to belong, okay? And that we need that at a certain level. Next level is called esteem. This is just self-esteem, how we conceive of ourselves in certain ways and how we feel uh, esteem is related to how we think we have agency in the world and how we're able to impact that world, but we need some esteem. We particularly uh, receive that from other people, so that's connected to love and belonging. And then the top of the triangle, Maslow defined this as self-actualization. This is where a human being has the freedom to actualize themselves and use their agency in the world in which they can impact it and feel good about it, okay? In our culture, we have the freedom to actually live at the top of this triangle, okay? Now, there's two forces, and I want you to write these on the side of the triangle. Economy, okay? And then you can write philosophy slash psychology, and then draw an arrow pointing to the top of the triangle on each side, okay? One of the interesting things that happened is that several things have collided in our culture that press us towards self-actualization. Do modern Americans really worry about starvation? No, not even the most hungry person in America 
You don't hear of anyone starving. You do have people who are malnourished and not taken care of physically, and that's uh, a tragic thing, but we don't find people starving in modern America. Now, if you went to other continents and to other countries, you would find that there are people in danger of malnourishment where they could die within a few weeks uh, because of their food situation, all right? When that is your life and you live there at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, guess what the last thing on your mind is? Your gender identity, yeah, your self-actualization, okay? Um, It's just simply not a concern. And if you want to know why certain questions are being asked inside of our culture that are not being asked in other cultures, this triangle explains it for you, okay? But these forces of economy have a lot to do with that. We live in the wealthiest culture in the history of the world. The history of the world has a lot of cultures, doesn't it? Has there been wealth before? Yes. Has there been the democratization of wealth in the way that we experience it? No, okay? And so economy has a lot to do with this. It frees us from some of those lower concerns, okay? It doesn't solve everything in between, but it does free us in certain ways and presses us towards that self-actualization. Now, the second thing that conspires with the economy is philosophy. And philosophy is just simply people who think lofty thoughts, and those lofty thoughts become enshrined in institutions, and institutions then teach these things and promulgate them, and they become part of a culture's life, okay? It's a very complex process. I can't pretend to understand it all, but I think it's self-evident enough to know that this goes on, okay? And so we've seen that in Western philosophy, there's been a move away from external sources that identify us and give us a sense of design and purpose, and that meaning has now turned to a psychological conviction. That is what we want it to be, okay? And so when you apply the forces of economy and then those changes in philosophy and psychology, it presses us towards self-actualization. And so we suddenly live in a world where it is acceptable to say, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. Something that in large parts of the history of the world, people would have scratched their head and said, what are you talking about? Okay, but it is a force of all these cultural things, okay? So that's one way to summarize what's going on, is this is where we are living, and it's important for us to be extremely self-aware for ourselves and also to understand your neighbor, okay? Because this is where we are. Now, why is this important is the second question. One of the things that's going on, especially in Christian circles, is there can be a sense of outrage and frustration, okay? Many of these changes feel sudden and violent, but one of the things I've said, it's important to buffer that feeling by understanding that this didn't just happen yesterday, okay? And this is not just because of one political party who's in power or who's taken office. This is a long process that has been in the works for several hundred years, okay? Now, the second thing to notice about this is that it also is not just about sexual stuff. This is the way that it's presented to us, okay? This is the way it kind of comes home and comes to your doorstep. You'll have a child come home for school and say, yeah, well, so-and-so told me that they're non-binary. I didn't know my children would be introduced to those terms, you know? What exactly do you do with that? But that's how it comes to your doorstep. It's gonna come kind of in sexualized forms. 
And so that can uh, particularly cause Christians because we have, we have strong notions about sexuality. Okay, the Bible teaches what it means for a human being to be created in the image of God, male and female. Okay, and so that we can then fixate on that, okay, as the core problem. But is sex really at the core of this? And I just encourage you to answer that question, no. Don't, don't be a Freudian, okay, um, in that sense of it. Don't be overly fixated on it. But rather, the core crisis is, uh, is how human beings are defining themselves, okay? And human beings in, in modern America are defining themselves around their sexuality, okay? But sexuality is the rotten fruit of a corrupt systemic root, okay? The corrupt systemic root is that we have thrown off an external definition and we've decided to go with our own psychological conviction about what it means to be a human being. Okay, uh, And so what we want to do as Christians is we do want to address people. We want to be able to talk to them about these things. But you also want to be addressing the fire, the burning fire. Because if you don't address the burning fire, if you just simply content yourself to talk about the wrongness of what we perceive to be uh, sexual sins, you're just fanning around the smoke. Okay? The fire is how we are defining ourselves and who has the right to define themselves, okay? And we have a very distinct notion that we are creatures made by God, and that means he has claims over us. He's the one get, that gets to decide right and wrong, function and design, that that's not left up to ourselves. And we've suggested and looked at throughout the book of Romans and also in our time together here that understanding that very primal sin of Adam and Eve is very helpful in this particular cultural moment because it's the same sin that we continue to participate in, okay? That Adam and Eve were told not to eat of one tree in the garden. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's important to understand what that tree is and what it stood for and what Adam intended to do when he and Eve ate from it. That what they were craving and what they were lusting after was the right to judge good and evil, to be the captains of that, to be the ones who defined it, to be the arbiters of right and wrong, to be the ones who define reality. And friends, this is what we see. It's the continued story. It's the debacle of humanity. And so we've not somehow reached some high water mark. This has just always been what it is. It takes on various shapes and forms, and it's particularly tragic and sad right now. But it is just the human condition, okay? And so that is where we are and why it's important for us to understand it. And one of the gifts when you're given the opportunity is to walk somebody through that situation, to explain, yes, this is the human condition. It's the condition that I share in too, that I want to be the captain of my own ship. I want to be the one who defines reality. But I believe that there's a God who created all things, and he's the one who has the rights of that. And I don't always like it. You can tell somebody that. <laughs> I don't always like it. But I know that he's the one in authority and control and, uh, and who gets to set the definitions. And so there we have it. Um, this is... Uh, this is why all of this is so important. 
And this takes us to the next point, uh, next question that we want to answer, and really the main question for today. And I'm going to get pretty practical today, all right? And whenever you get pretty practical, you tend to get more specific, and that means that the, uh, the opportunities for a offense rise really quickly, okay? Um, so get ready to be offended, um, and uh, strap that on, and uh, you can disagree with me on some of this, but I'm going to try to point to a few ways in which we can be uh, of a secular mindset, okay, in which we can be overcome by secularity. So how do we avoid becoming secular? All right? Two things that we're going to talk about, each with several points. First, turning from the psychologized self. We acknowledge that that's not the way that uh, God defines us in Scripture. God has the one who, he is the one who has the rights to define who we are. He defines us as male and female. He gives us our purpose as the image of God, that we're to represent him in the world, that we are to, uh, that we are to do so in the context of families, uh, uh, multiplying the image of God, spreading throughout the world, doing work to his glory. You know, God is the one who sets all of that context for us. He has the right to do so. And so we do have to recognize that this turn to the psycho- psychologized self is, um, is kind of an anti-biblical mantra, okay? It's a way of understanding the world that's foreign to a Christian. Now, what this means, uh, we're going to look at three practical things about how you can turn from the psychologized self, okay? Because, guys, we are all stewed in this cultural pot, okay? It's part of you whether you consciously recognize it or not, all right? And so we need to know how to resist it. It's part of me as well. So A, refuse the flattened world of secularism, okay? That's the first thing. Refuse that flattened world of secularism. What I mean by a flattened world is a world where there is no transcendence, okay? A world where there is no God who's meaningfully involved, Most modern Americans will still tell you they believe in God. It's just something kind of like a a fairy in the sky, kind of a deistic God who's up there, but is not incredibly involved with the world. And so he's fairly distant, okay? Past that, the world is though defined, even if there is some notion of God, the world is pretty much only defined in horizontal terms. That is in our relationships with other people and in our relationship with our own psychology. This is what we explored for all these weeks together. It's talking about the flattening of the world because there is no external authority. And that's the first place that you and I have to resist, okay? We need to understand our own thinking and be able to examine it and analyze it and say, when am I buying into that flattened world, okay? When does my happiness and my sense of flourishing become defined by that flattened world, okay? And I would suggest to you that it's quite easy for us to buy into that flat world when relationships and when our own sense of personal happiness begin to trump our obedience to Jesus. That's what it means to buy into the flat world, okay? That's exactly what modern secular America would teach you is the highest priority, okay? your horizontal relationships with the world, and also with your personal psychological fulfillment and happiness. And so you have to refuse that flat world, see that there is a greater authority. It's not just to acknowledge that God's the creator, but it is to live functionally under that creator and to allow him to define what it means to flourish. 
Because is your flourishing as a Christian just about your happiness? Shake your heads violently, no. (laughs) Does following Jesus sometimes cost you what the world would define as happiness? Up and down violently, yes, okay? Yes, okay? There's a cross to bear. And in the bearing of that cross, there is a joy and a confidence and a happiness that comes, but that is counterintuitive, and that can only come from God as you walk with him and commune with him through the difficulties of life. Okay? And so we don't define happiness in the same way as the world around us. All right? So refuse the flattened world. Second, this is where it's going to get uh, dicey. Guard your inputs. Okay? Part of the cultural revolution that we're in is a change in technology. Okay? Many of you have, well, most of you have lived through that revolutionary change in technology. Okay, and that's the way particularly that we receive information. Okay? One that is not new, it's just relationships. The people around you. Do the people around you have influence about what you believe and what you think and what you value? Yes. Okay? This is just simply part of what it means to be a fallen human being. All right? And so we need to guard ourselves in our relationships. This doesn't mean that we don't have relationships with non-Christians. Please do, Um, but it does mean that we need to be careful about the influence and the impact and the power of those relationships over our beliefs and values, okay? It can become very important to us. And then uh, one of the things that ends up happening is that many people then are tempted to compromise their beliefs and values in order to keep those relationships and to hold on to them, especially because Christianity doesn't comport with the secular mindset, okay? And we don't want to pay the cost that it's going to demand of us to, uh, to kind of go sideways in those relationships. So you need to guard the input of relationships. Secondly, you have things like podcast and social media and 24-hour news cycles. Are any of those neutral? No, okay? Does it mean that you need to cut off every form of outside input? No, okay? You can't. But it does need, mean that you need to be aware, okay? And this is one of the things that's oftentimes so lacking for us when we engage with these different forms of media is we're simply not aware. We like to be trusting and we like to be led, okay? And, uh, and so, but then we submit ourselves to these things and they end up shaping our thinking and shaping what we value in ways that may not comport with the Bible, okay? And also, you have unlimited access. How many podcasts can you listen to in a day? I'm amazed. I know people who don't have to interact with others, and so they're able to listen to it all day, okay? And they get some interesting news stories, and they get some interesting historical facts. Okay, there's all kinds of great stuff out there. Please don't hear me uh, trashing the medium. But you also have to be guarded, okay? You guys have heard me mention uh, the 24-hour news cycle and uh, kind of that it's designed to create hysteria, okay? And so if you feed yourself on that for multiple hours a day, When that's what's on from 7 in the morning until the evening, 
kind of in the background, is it going to shape the way you view the world? Yes, okay, it is. And the hysteria and the constant uh, lampooning of one side or the other, it's going to define your world. It's going to particularly define your world politically, okay? And we've said that that's part of the secular mindset. And so is it wrong to watch the news? No, it's good to know what's going on. Yes, it's always going to be biased, whatever news source you get. It's good to be aware of that, but it's also good not to be overtaken by this, okay? Because you will start to live out a certain narrative when you do so. And we always, we need to be uh, highly aware. And then we need to be feeding ourselves with other inputs, okay? Um, Just thinking about this from Philippians. Paul says this, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And I would just encourage you all to commit that verse to memory. Because there is so much that we can meditate on. To meditate is just simply to turn something over and over in your mind, okay? And what happens with these inputs is we turn things over and over in our minds, and it begins to shape us in ways that perhaps aren't always Christian. And so we want to guard those inputs, and we want to make sure that we're meditating on, that we're thinking about, that we're always contemplating and considering the things that are good and just and lovely and honorable as God defines them. So guard your inputs. Third, beware of identity curation. I couldn't come up with another term, so I'm sorry. But I'm gonna uh, specifically address uh, one of the things that's going on, uh, particularly in social media, how all of this stuff meets together, kind of the psychologized self, and then social media and how it kind of creates the perfect storm. Now, the word media is fairly simple. It just simply means in between, okay? So when you have something that's mediated, it's in between you and something else, right? Okay, social media is something, uh, a platform that is mediating your relationship with other people, all right? In modern America, we do have a breakdown in social relationships, and a lot of what's happened is relationships are now being mediated through these platforms, called Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, or uh, you can keep going. My, my sons always make fun of my imbecile-like knowledge of these things. Snapchat. Um, so what happens when we are seeking fulfillment, when we are seeking fulfillment and psychological happiness through social media is that we become addicted somewhat to curating that image of ourselves and presenting ourselves to the world, okay? And this can become an obsession. It's why uh, pictures get, um, get photoshopped. It's why people, try, people then try to present a certain type of happiness that they want everyone to think, this is what my life really looks like. Is that what your life really looks like? Of course not, <laughs> okay? 
Your life is just as complicated as anybody else. Your kids scream and, and fight and, and do things, you know, and then uh, oftentimes we just present it as it's just all the Brady Bunch, you know, and it's just perfect, okay? And we're curating this identity that we want to project into the world, and social media enables us to do that, okay? And so what ends up happening is people are retreating from actual relationships and devoting obsessive amounts of time to cultivating and curating who they want to be perceived as, okay? And it can be a dangerous part of this kind of secular mindset that we're talking about. Uh, One of the other things that happens inside of this medium is just simply comparison. It's interesting this week, um, there was an article in The Atlantic uh, that identified that Facebook, Instagram, these social media platforms are very aware, particularly for teenage girls, that their platforms are destructive. The teenage girls are living in comparison to all the various forms of media that are put in front of them, particularly ones uh, uh, that, involve, um, that involve body image, okay? And the comparison factor, and it's not just teenage girls, it's also men, it's also grown w- women as well, that there's a strong comparison factor when someone curates their identity and presents themselves in a certain way we can be filled with discontentment and envy. Guys, these things are not neutral. If you watch the documentaries uh, that have been created on this, it's fairly disturbing. It's worth being highly aware. Doesn't mean that you don't engage or use these platforms, but it does mean that you need to know how it works. Uh, There's one that was put out by Netflix, over a year ago, it's particularly helpful, and it's the very creators of these platforms that are being interviewed. And they said, you know, we knew we were creating something, and one of the guys explains, my job was to monetize Facebook, and so we needed to figure out how to make it productive financially. He said, so we started coming up with these different tools, and they started to figure out that in order to make it productive financially, they needed to hook you. And so they started affecting the way the algorithm worked on likes that you would receive because they did ran tests on human beings like lab rats and they found out that when you saw that your thing had been liked, guess what? Dopamine. You get a hit. And guess what happened if you got like 10 hits? If you checked it 10 seconds ago and then the next time you checked in, you got a jump. Dopamine explosion, okay? I'm not joking. This is all just base biology, all right? And so they figured out that and tapped into it. And yet we can just be fairly naive in throwing our children into these realms or ourselves, okay? Thinking that we're mature enough and strong enough to handle it. And I would just suggest that we need to be very careful and guarded, okay? Highly self-aware. Because all of these things do fit into a certain cultural story and a particular cultural moment. All right? And that's what involved, uh, will be involved with turning from the psychologized self. All right. Number two, loving our neighbors no matter the ditch. Jesus tells the story in Luke 10 of a Samaritan walking down the road from Jerusalem. It's a particularly perilous road, it's very steep. And there is a man in the ditch, okay? He'd been left there uh, to die. He was half dead, you could say. 
and he decides to help him, and Jesus uses that story with three other men who were uh, notable and respectable in society. They had passed by, and he said, who was this man's neighbor? And everyone knew the answer, that disgusting Samaritan, okay? And it's very effective, and Jesus' own cultural world continues to be effective for us. But one of the things that we're going to have to do is figure out what it means to love our neighbors in a very uh, contested society where our fundamental beliefs and convictions are not shared. The ethical framework that we use is no longer can be, it can't be assumed. That definitions of who God is are very different, okay? And so we got to learn how to inhabit that space. The great thing is that you're not the first Christians to ever have to do that, all right? Not even close to it that the majority of Christian experience has been lived out in that very place where there is no shared definition of, of, ethic, of ethics, there is no shared definition of uh, who God is, and that Christians have done this for a very long time. But as we live in that increasingly secular society, we will, we will have to figure out how to love our neighbors no matter what particular ditch they're in. If we find that ditch to be disgusting, and if we find them to be particularly nasty down in the bottom of that ditch, it doesn't mean that you get to pass, okay? That our challenge is to enter into that ditch and to do our best to love our neighbor, to help pull them out and to show them care. Now, uh, four things that I want to talk about as to what this love is going to require and what it's going to look like. Uh, for us as Christians, this will involve the priority of the things of first importance, okay? This is Paul's phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, the things of first importance, and he's talking about the gospel, and he's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and as you interact with an increasingly secular society, and as you feel that tension in the different values and beliefs, what it's going to require of you is to resist taking the bait in all kinds of other discussions. And it's going to involve you being creative and it's going to involve you engaging on the things of first importance. And that is a joyful and a confident commitment to the gospel. Okay? That that is what we want to really discuss with people. That is where we want to engage. Because we believe we have news and light for the world. Okay? Not just something that happens to help us therapeutically to get through the struggles of life. We believe that we have truth for the world about God's design for the world, about what God has done to rescue that world and what he has done in Jesus to bring all that about and then what is going to happen. And so what we desperately need to do is inhabit that and have that to be the thing of first importance. And this is where I'm saying you need to guard your inputs because when your inputs are telling you that something else is more important, it will, it will end up hijacking you, okay? And so we need to prioritize these things of first importance and go out into the world knowing that there's tension and with kind of a joyful confidence in the power of Jesus, okay, and the power of the gospel in our lives and potentially for other people. Jesus tells the story uh, in Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And so one of my prayers for myself and my prayers for my children and my prayers for you is that we would be like that man, that we would have that constant sense of joy with the gospel, that it would not become tedious or boring, and that it would be our joy to sell everything that we have to have that, 
okay? That that kingdom of God and that story of how God's kingship has come into the world through Jesus, that that would become the most and be the most important thing day over day, month over month, year over year, okay? But that's what it means to prioritize the things of first importance. Secondly, uh, we have to show respect. Second Timothy 2, this is Paul speaking to a young minister in training, but it applies to all of us. He says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. One of the things that we're going to have to work on and improve on is just engaging with that type of gentleness and respect when there is fundamental disagreement. Guys, this is demanding and it's hard, and I will not claim 100% success rate. Okay? And so if you feel like a failure in this, that's okay. What you do in the sense of failure is you simply repent and you ask God, help me to do better in the future. Okay? It means that we want to engage with people, honoring them as fellow images of God, recognizing that they are products of the fall, and that we're really not that surprised that human beings want to be the captain of their own ship and define themselves in their own ways. Are we surprised by that? No. This has been the story of humanity all the way from the start. Okay? And so we're not going to be surprised by it. We're going to show respect for them. We're going to engage with gentleness. It doesn't mean that we compromise our beliefs. Okay? And when I ask you to show respect, that is not what we're saying at all. This is not a compromise of Christian conviction in any way. It just means that we uh, acknowledge the other person's created in the image of God, and we seek to be persuasive and gentle. Now, this leads to the third point. You've got to recognize the conflict. This is the hard part of the moment we're in. We've talked a lot about how equality is being defined. And is equality being defined simply as the right to be and to do? No. Something else has been added to it, okay? And the addition is that equality also involves the right to be recognized, okay? So when we talk about love today, oftentimes the way love is being defined in the secular world is it's not simply about kindness or respect or doing well by another person. It is about recognition, okay? Do you affirm do you accept and do you recognize me as to who I say I am? Okay. So Christians used to use this phrase a lot. I heard it all the time coming through the church in college. That we want to love the sinner and hate the sin. You remember that phrase? It's a useful phrase, isn't it? Somewhat. Okay. The complicated space that we're in today is that people don't perceive that you're loving them unless you are accepting them as to how they've defined themselves, okay? That's the tension that you're gonna be engaged with. And what you have to do is try to overcome it by being loving and kind and respectful, okay? That's the only tool that you've got in your tool belt to overcome it. And that's the tool that God has given you, okay? And it's sufficient, but that's the only way that you can press into that, okay? This is just where we're at loggerheads culturally. 
Final thing that I would say about loving your neighbors, you just have to choose the battlefields. Okay. Um, and this just involves when and where you can interact about these things. Um, when the best moment is, you know, what's the best medium? Um, you know, is it wise to get in these debates on social media? I would suggest to you not. Okay? I've never seen it go well. I've seen a whole lot of it. And I can promise you I've never seen it go well. Okay? When someone decides to put out their moral conviction out there and lays it out there and then gets a little upset and thinks, I'm going to straighten this person out. I haven't seen it work yet. You know, I haven't heard of tons of people flooding into the church in repentance. <laughs> Sorry, I don't need to be snarky about it. Uh, but it's not a completely effective way of engagement. And so I just call you to be aware um, Losing our cool doesn't necessarily help. These conversations are exhausting and it's easy to lose your cool, okay? Um, it's hard to be called phobic simply because you disagree with something, even if you respectfully disagree. That's hard and you need to be ready to face that. And you want to choose the battlefield as to how you engage with it. It involves a tremendous amount of respect for the other person it involves being honest, talking about Christianity and our fundamental convictions, and it means that we have to know those well. And so we want to uh, choose the time and location of those conversations. Sometimes that time and location will just find you. I was digging out a 75-year-old azalea bush out of the front of my house in Arlington, Virginia. It was buried in Virginia red clay, and it was hard and dry. The plant was dying, but the root system was unbelievably complicated. And so I am out there all day. One of my neighbors decides to come down, and, uh, and he, he was kind of helping for about 15 minutes or so, and I am in the bottom of a four-foot hole as I dug down by the foundation of my house. And, um, and then he says to me, he goes, you know, uh, I, I was at a, um, at a work retreat, and uh, we, we hired a spiritual advisor. He's a, a former Methodist minister. And uh, we went out into a sweat lodge and he was talking about getting in touch with the great spirit. And we, you know, we went through this sauna-like experience where we're sweating and putting rocks on ourselves. And it was incredibly spiritual. And he says, what do you think about that? <laughs> and we, we just moved in. <laughs> Um, nobody on our street was Christian, you know, not even remotely. And, uh, and here I am. Everybody knew I was the minister. They always know I'm the minister. And uh, before I even say a word about it, it's always known. I, I'm still mystified by how it happens. But it's just a fact. And, uh, and so here I am in the bottom of the hole, dirt all over my face, sweat streaming all over my body. And he was choosing the battlefield. He wanted to have the conversation. You know, and also I didn't have any relationship with him yet. You know, and so it involves an extreme amount of wisdom and shrewdness to know what to do. So my profound answer was, ouch. <laughs> Sounds painful. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, glad, I'm glad that I've, I've, I've found a slightly different way. I'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, let's, let's get together and do so. Um, you know, and we're able to laugh it off and move on um, and, uh, and, and have other conversations. 
they were difficult and hard and didn't lead to lots of agreement, okay? Um, and so, guys, and we just have to also accept that that's, that's part of it, that uh, perhaps God will grant repentance. And we live in the confidence that God's the one who does so. I've gone too long. It's 21. We've got this other gig, and kids are piling up outside. So um, those are a start at thinking about how not to be secular, okay? If I have prompted a question, if I have made you angry, um, let's be respectful and have conversation, okay? Uh, I would love that, welcome that. You can shoot me an email, you can talk to me afterwards. Um, that would be great. Um, these things are important, and this is me just trying to guide you uh, into green pasture, you know, as to knowing how to navigate all these things that are going on around us. All right, let me pray for us. Fathers, we talk about practical things inside of our culture and a complex moment in which uh, people are defining themselves according to their own psychological convictions. God, we ask that you give us help and awareness and reflection and that we know how to guard our hearts and that we know how to be wise and to be informed and shaped by you. Lead us and guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.